0: So we'll be hearing from 2 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. I'll give you a second to get it open if you haven't already. I'm really not good at guessing how long it takes for people. I'm just going to assume most of you are here by now. Yeah, all right. So, after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul, leaning on his spear, with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and said, And I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beh- beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the band on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord, and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am a son of a foreigner, an Malachite." he answered. David said to him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. For he struck him down and he died. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Alright guys, please do keep your Bibles open at um,
1: uh, 2 Samuel 1 partly because in my slides I foolishly might have missed one or missed two, I can't remember but anyway, it'll, it will keep you on your toes. Uh, and uh, I'll lead us in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you speak to us in your word. Please help us to concentrate now, to rejoice at your word, to tremble at your word and be transformed by it to become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, do I have power? Yeah. Brothers and sisters, trying to live righteously can sometimes get really tiring. You're driving somewhere, you're running late, the light goes from green to amber, there's no one behind you that's in danger and whilst you could easily run and make it through, you know that it's not actually right. And as a follower of Jesus, you know that God says obey the road rules. And so you hit the brakes and you slow down and you stop. And as you're there at the stop line, you think, well, yeah, I've done the right thing, but I'm even more frustrated and agitated because I'm going to be even more late than what I otherwise was. And it's like, ah, apparently I'll just be a bit unrighteous and just shoot through. It'll be much easier. Perhaps it's a very significant relationship a very significant relationship possibly even you know marriage and it's being really difficult you know that person a close person maybe a spouse and the world is yelling at you just give it up man cut and run that's all right just cut cut your loss and get out of there you know that's wrong you know it's right to persist to persevere But gosh, the grind day in and day out of persevering in that difficult relationship just saps your soul. Sometimes with me, it's been when uh, my kids were a bit younger, they get an invitation to go to a birthday party for a friend and it's on a Sunday when church would normally be on. And as a dad, you can feel like a jerk, but you've got to say, well, the reality is there is no such thing as a mature Christian Who doesn't prioritise regular fellowship with a Christian family? So the answer is, no, you can't go. And I do say that to the kids when they get a Sunday invitation, but gee, it kills me on the inside. Trying to live righteously can sometimes be really tiring. You know, I totally resonate with the writer of Psalm 73. If you haven't read that, it's a great psalm to know. Psalm 73. Uh, The writer looks out at all the world who doesn't know God. They don't know the Lord. And he observes that they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Now, of course, in reality, that's not actually true. But you get the point. It's poetry. It's like it's so much better to not know the Lord because you don't have to worry about being righteous. Do whatever you want. A few verses down, verse 12, this is what the wicked are like always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. I mean, they don't see the money in in, in reality that it's God's stuff, they can just pursue their hedonistic careers or whatever. And so, understandably, the writer of this psalm starts to wonder, is righteousness really worth it? Is it worth it to keep obeying God? And so, from the next verse, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence all day long I've been afflicted, every morning brings new punishments, worn down by being righteous. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you have, not just in your head but in your heart, ever got to the point where you've seriously wondered if living to please God is really worth the effort. Well, tonight, as we begin our new sermon series, or more accurately, I should say, really, as we recommence our sermon series in Samuel. uh, We're we're starting off from where we left off last year, we're in 1 Samuel last year and we're just picking up in 2 Samuel now. As we do that in the opening of 2 Samuel, which uh, we just had read out for us, we're confronted with a stark reminder that unrighteousness is only, ever, always the worst option. Unrighteousness is only ever always the worst option. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get there, we've got to sort of reorient ourselves with uh, the Samuel world. So I'm going to give us a bit of a quick background to get us all on the same page for uh, this uh, starting of uh, 2 Samuel. The book of 2 Samuel starts with the words, after, after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Now, here's the situation, right? Saul was the king that Israel had chose. And they didn't choose him to make them more like a holy nation, to make them more like God. They chose him so that they would be like all the other pagan nations. So, of course, things weren't going to go well with Saul. David, on the other hand, was the king chosen according to God's own heart, the king that God wanted, the king who would be like God. Not surprisingly, Saul was very jealous of David and had actually been trying to kill him. Now, in order to get away, David did this weird thing. He pretended, he did a real good job, but nonetheless, he pretended to join forces with Israel's enemies, the Philistines. And uh, as a Philistine, quote unquote, he actually had opportunity to kill Saul, But he would not do it because Saul was the Lord's anointed king. And so to kill Saul would be to kill the leader that God had put in charge. David had reasoned that Saul will eventually die some other way of old age or God will strike him down or he'll die in battle. Now, in the course of time, the Philistines mounted this huge offensive against the Israelites, like one of the big battles of their history. David originally wanted to join in, because remember he's pretending to to fight with the Philistines. Presumably at the last minute he would have switched or something like that. But the leaders of the Philistines won't let him join and it turns out that was just as well because as David travels back home to his temporary home in Ziklag, uh, by the time he arrives, he discovers that this other group of enemies of Israel, namely the Amalekites, had actually taken off with the wives and children of David and his men. And so David and his men have to go and chase after the Amalekites and start a war with them in order to get all their stuff back. And, and stuff is not the right word people and stuff back. So there's two sort of big conflicts going on one with Saul, the Israel, Israelites and Philistines, one with David, David and his men, and the Amalekites. Now, in 1 Samuel 31, the last chapter of the last book before this, The Philistines win the war, They actually defeat Israel, and Saul and his sons all died. We learn, because we're told, that Saul fell on his own sword and died, which was preferable to him than being captured by the Philistines. We also learn that David was actually successful against the Amalekites, and he's now returned to his temporary home in Ziklag, but he doesn't yet know the outcome of the Philistine battle with Israel. So that's where we are at the beginning of 2 Samuel 1. So with the scene set, we now come to the meeting in which David learns of the death of Saul and his sons, which included actually David's best friend, Jonathan. But there's something really odd about the story. And about the young man who informs David of Israel's defeat. I wonder if you had a sense of it when it was being read out before by Seth. We'll look at it again from verse 2. It says, On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. Now, a couple of things to notice here. First of all, you notice it's on the third day that this guy comes to deliver the news. You might have realised after a while of reading the Bible that God orchestrates things such that the third day is usually the day where something gets confirmed, something gets set in stone. For example, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. So, Abraham takes Isaac and they start off on a journey... And on the third day, he looks up and he sees Mount Moriah, which is where the sacrifice will take place. So he knows it's going to happen. Uh, For example, again, the Israelites get rescued out of Egypt and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God says, make sure you consecrate yourselves and set up barriers around the mountain. And on the third day, God comes to meet with his people at Sinai. Uh, You might remember from the book of Esther, uh, Queen Va- did I say Vashti? Queen Esther, not Vashti, she was already gone, is going to approach King Xerxes. But she's a bit terrified because if Xerxes doesn't think she approaches well, it's off with her head. So she prays and fasts and gets her people to do. And on the third day, she approaches him and he holds up the golden scepter. Right? Third day, confirmation, confirmation. Well, God had said through the, the late prophet Samuel that Saul and his sons would all die on the same day. And the third day is when David, he's just about to hear that that has actually been confirmed. The second thing to notice here is that there's a bit of ambiguity about this guy's allegiances, the young man. He says, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. Now, that could mean he's an enemy of Israel and he's been fighting in the camp and the fighting got bad and he escaped, or it could be that he's a citizen of Israel, even though he's not an ethnic Jew. He's a citizen of Israel and the Israelites have been captured and he's escaped. Either way, David's got to play it cool because, remember, he's in Philistine territory and uh, he, he sort of has to suss out whether or not he's got to pretend to have an allegiance with this guy or he really has an allegiance with this guy. Uh, you'll see it in the, in the next verse, which we'll look at in just a minute, how David very cleverly doesn't uh, play his cards too openly. But the way that this young man presents the report makes it obvious that he knows what really matters most to David. This young man knows what concerns David. You see, he presents the details in what he knows will be increasing severity. So from verse 4, here's David playing it cool. He just says, what happened, David asked, tell me. He doesn't say you saw dead, he just, you know, just what happened? And the man tells him halfway through verse verse 4, the men fled from the battle, that's bad, many of them fell and died, oh that's worse, and Saul, oh no, and his son Jonathan, oh double no, are dead. See they're the things that David cared about most, Jonathan, Saul, Israel. Now we know from verse 10, that this young man has in his possession Saul's crown and Saul's armband, and that would immediately prove that Saul is dead, but he doesn't reveal that straight away. We get the impression that he wants a bit of an opportunity to tell the story of how things happen uh, before he presents the irrefutable proof that he was there when Saul died. So, verse 5, Then David said to the young man who brought in the report, How do you know? that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And this is the opportunity that the young Amalekite man was looking for. You and I already know that Saul took his own life using his sword and that Saul's armour bearer was certain, I hope, that Saul was dead because he took his own life too. You'd think he wouldn't do that unless he knew that Saul had already been struck down and died. But now, as this young man tells the story, he inserts himself into the narrative in such a way that in his mind at least it'll make David really happy with him the verse six he says I happened to be on Mount Gilboa the young man said and there was Saul leaning on his spear now that's interesting we know he fell on his sword but we also happen to know that only Saul and Jonathan had spears so this sounds like it's He's kind of going over the top to say this really was Saul. Halfway through verse 6, with chariots and drivers in hot pursuit. It's kind of hard to imagine how this all happened. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me. And I said, what can I do? And he asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Now, this is where things start to sound a little bit fishy. Instead of saying his name, I am so-and-so... He just says an Amalekite, which could be highly ambiguous because the Amalekites are uh, traditionally enemies. As a matter of fact, the reason Saul was going to lose his kingship was because he failed to wipe them out. The leaning on his spear thing, when we know it was his sword, little detail, maybe, maybe you could make an argument that, you know, like it was just sort of generally speaking, but maybe not. But the fact that Saul also says, who are you? Don't you think the king who's fighting in a battle, would know the people that are closest to him. As a matter of fact, at the end of 2 Samuel, we get lists of men and their roles, including the fighting men. The idea is that it's kind of weird if there's someone in his proximity who's unknown to him. But then it becomes even more clear, to us as readers at least, that this guy is telling a brilliantly crafted lie. You guys all know the best kind of lie to tell, right? If you're going to tell a really good lie... He used 95% truth. Um, I tried showing this to my growth group this week and I failed because I forgot to tell the lie. Like, I told them this brilliant story, it was all true. Anyway, but uh, taken from this guy, here he goes. Verse 9. Then he that he saw said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and I killed him. Because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. And so now it all comes together. We know that Saul was already dead, but this guy, after bowing down in honour of David, has now claimed to be the one who delivered the fatal blow, almost certainly with the belief that doing so will put him in the great favour of Israel's new king he assumes that because Saul was hunting David that David would be glad to hear of Saul's death and now as the new king of Israel perhaps there'd even be some kind of reward for this young opportunistic Amalekite a little bit of untruth in order to gain great standing with Israel's king see clearly he was around clearly he knew enough detail and he just had to to put a few extra bits in there Surely this would be one of those few times where crime actually does pay. Just a little bit of untruth for really a lifetime worth of benefit. Tiny little bit of unrighteousness to be in favour with the king of God's people. But then we get the response from David. You see, unlike the typical rulers of our fallen world, David is actually genuinely righteous and his response is righteous and that spells doom for this young Amalekite from verse 11 then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them they mourned and wept and fasted till evening note for Saul who's mentioned first and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword And I wonder whether or not this young Amalekite was a little bit worried when he realised that David was mourning not only for Jonathan and Israel, but even for Saul, the Lord's anointed. Perhaps he convinced himself that it was just David putting on an act to save face. I mean, David clearly could and had done that. But you and I know that David had opportunities to kill Saul and had very purposely not taken them you might remember it's a while back you know but he's uh, one of his uh, fighting men Abishai was there when Saul was asleep and he had the spear and he said David let me pin him to the ground man I'll only do it in one shot it be done David said no or before that when David was hiding in the cave and Saul came in and David cut off a corner of his robe. Right. he could have easily just cut his jugular but he only cut the David could easily have killed Saul and he refused 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 because Saul even though he had big confrontation with David, was God's chosen king, God's anointed king, the ruler of God's people. And David knew that to kill Saul would therefore be a dreadful affront to God himself. And so then we come to the sad climax of the story, whereupon the unexpected fate of this young Amalekite is sealed. Verse 13, David said to the young man who brought in the report, why? Oh, sorry. Where are you from? And I'm not there yet. Where are you from? And he said, I'm the son of a foreigner and a Malachite, he answered. By the way, if you've got an ESV, you'll see it says he's the son of a sojourner, that he's he's not an ethnic Israelite, but he's a citizen of Israel nonetheless. So he would have known that it's a dreadful thing to lift his hand against the Lord anointed. So then, verse 14. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? And the question really doesn't need an answer. The fact that he wasn't afraid means this guy has given a huge affront to God and he's clearly made it up in order to get into David's good books. And if for some reason he hasn't made it up, if this is all, well, he's killed the Lord. Either way, this guy's an enemy, either he's a traitor or he's an actual enemy. So verse 15, then David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. And he struck him down and he died. But David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you. And you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. And so it is that an opportunistic lie that was very close to the truth became the undoing of this young man. He sincerely believed that in claiming to have executed Saul, he'd get great favour from Israel's new king, but of course he was sincerely wrong. What he didn't bank on was the fact that Israel's new king, the king chosen according to God's own heart, was a king who loved righteousness and hated wickedness. By the way, friends, so it is with the true Davidic king that God has anointed to rule not just over Israel but over the whole world, including you and me here and now. See, with Saul, it was on the third day that the confirmation came that his kingship had failed, it was over. With Jesus, of course, it was on the third day that confirmation came, not from a messenger, but from God himself, by raising him from the dead, that Jesus truly is the Lord's anointed. That is, he is the Messiah, and that his eternal kingdom has now come into effect. The people who crucified Jesus would come to realise that even worse than this Amalekite who had claimed to have killed the Lord's anointed, that they really had killed the Lord's anointed and not just a Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed, not just a Christ, the Christ they had killed. In Peter's famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, he said to such people, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And of course, verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Basically, they would have been terrified out of their wits. They know what happens to someone who lifts their hand against the Lord's anointed. We've just crucified him. God showed that he really was the king by raising her. We're stuffed. We're doomed. We're like this Amalekite guy. We're just off with our heads. And that's why verse 38 is some of the most surprising and refreshingly wonderful words that you can read in the Scriptures. Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The spoils of his victory, in other words, will be yours. These promises for you and your children, all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call." The hardest thing about, I, I think the hardest thing about getting someone to put their faith in Jesus should be that it just seems so profoundly good, too good to be true. That those who raise their hand against the Lord's anointed, those who put Jesus to death, can yet be offered forgiveness in his name. Those who repent and are baptised, immersed in Jesus are those who are forgiven even for raising their hand against the Lord and Lord's anointed. You see, for all unrighteousness of every person, past, present, future, even the horrendously wicked act of putting Christ to death, there is genuine forgiveness available. You don't have to be like that young Amalekite. You can have complete forgiveness for all your unrighteousness by putting your trust in Jesus and living with him as your risen Lord. But of course, to know Jesus as the Lord's anointed... To enjoy the full forgiveness that he has given us is to know that it is only ever, always wrong to choose unrighteousness. No matter how slight. Yes, righteous living can get really tiring. But when it comes to unrighteous living, well, in the end, there'll be no rest, day or night, for the wicked in their eternal torment. And it kind of doesn't make sense, you see, if Jesus forgives all sin, past, present, future, you are made completely righteous in the sight of God. You have all the advantage that you could ever possibly need for all eternity. You, you actually have nothing more you can gain. So doing something, unrighteousness will, uh, something unrighteous won't actually put you any better in relation to God. It'll only ever make things worse. Uh, to put it simply... For those who serve God's anointed king, unrighteousness is only ever always the worst option. No matter what, it's only ever always the worst option. You remember that Jesus himself taught, Matthew's uh, Gospel Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, that those who belong to his kingdom are those who will hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are the ones who will be blessed. No matter how tiring our ongoing obedience to Jesus can become. It is always only ever better to pursue righteousness than to compromise. Sin will never lead to a real advantage. Sure, it might give temporary worldly benefits by the way we might measure things, but it will never, never be for your good. No unrighteousness is ever good for those who know the righteous king. The writer of Psalm 73, the one that I quoted at the start, he saw this to be the case. Later on in the psalm, he writes, and I quote, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, as in I was troubled by the fact that the wicked seemed to prosper. Verse 17, Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely, God, you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away, by terrors, And I can't help but think of that young Amalekite doing his unrighteous thing to get... But how suddenly it all came to naught. How suddenly he was struck down. So I have to ask tonight, brothers and sisters, where does the rubber hit the road for you? To put it another way, in what areas of your life are you tempted to think that even a little bit of unrighteousness will actually be beneficial will actually be feel good i get it in all sorts of ways you know i've got that thing on my phone that says like driving mode when you're driving the car and i don't like the spotify song and i want to change it you know it's just so tempting to reach down and you know push the just, just, tell the phone i'm not driving and then you know like push the buttons anyone got that same thing right yeah ridiculous maybe some of these p-platers here they've been so well taught good don't be like me that's a problem and you think well what possible damage could there be what possible problem could there be? No, it's not worth it. The damage is easy. I'm the one who serves the righteous king and will for all eternity. And he's the one who died for all my sins, whether small or big. And it's just it's just going to pollute my heart. I've got to stop doing so. What is it for you? Where is that little area even where you think, Sigh. I know it's not really the greatest thing, but hey, it's better than that worst sin that I was going to do, so I'll just do the little sin. You know, justify little things like that to yourself. Don't do it. You've got no real advantage because Jesus has already paid for all your sin, past, present, future. You're as close with God as you ever possibly can be. It can only ever make things worse. Whatever it is for you, I'm going to pray for us right now that it'll be something that you can nip in the bud. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself to purify us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that as the anointed king, he has complete victory over sin, the world and the devil, and that he claims us as his own people, makes us eager to do what is good, and that we therefore, Father, have absolutely nothing whatsoever to gain by compromising our righteousness, Father, for whatever it is in our lives where we're tempted to think that we'll be better off with sin. Wherever we think we'll be better off, even with a little bit of sin, Father, please work in us powerfully by your Spirit, convict us of the truth, that's total rubbish. And may we instead repent where we need to repent and do good where we need to do good that you've prepared in advance for us to do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.